Welcome to another Hometown Daily News Show. This is for December 7th, 2022. Let's get into the news. Hello, I am Merwat. That is hometown.com. That's the new follower goal. That would be great if somebody were to smash some of that right there. Hit it over to 100, that would be perfect. That's not how I normally start out the show, but I guess I'll throw it out there. Today is December 7th, 2022. Episode 341, I think it is. We're going to do another fast 10. See if I can get this show somewhere around the... 30 minute mark maybe push it to 45 uh, if i it really depends on how much soapboxing i do but it all focuses on the business technology and society aspect of things can't get away from it today's title is murder hornets murder robots murdered revenue and more news i'll probably get in trouble when this gets ported over to youtube I'm not sure how Twitch will handle this title, but I'll leave it there. Let's see what happens. Let's get into today's news. First article is you can't combine two Apple IDs, but here's what you can do. Now I've had this problem for a while in that, you know, when you have a large library of stuff, I have yet to find out what the continuity of ownership is going to be. Upon my demise, I've got somewhere around 680 movies. I don't really purchase music anymore. I stream it all the time, but I've got books, audiobooks, etc., etc. So it's all supposedly owned, but what if I want to merge my Apple ID into somebody else's ID? upon some agreement i don't know like my demise does someone can i will it to somebody include the password and will it to somebody well this here says you can't combine two apple ids but here's what you can do it's william uh, written by william gallagher over at appleinsider.com And it says, uh, this could be the shortest tip you've ever read. It is not possible to combine two or more Apple IDs into one. If you've only ever had one Apple ID, this could also be the most puzzling tip you've ever read because it's hard to imagine why there's a problem until you get more than one. The problem with multiple IDs, sometimes you get a new Apple ID through your work or school, already have one, etc. You can elect to create a new one because you want to publish podcasts. Keep that separate from your personal work. That's not really possible. Uh, For me, I have a business one and I have a personal one. So whatever uh, way you accrue more than one Apple ID, once you have a couple, then there comes the question of which one is really you. And if you decide to subscribe to Apple Music, for instance, you have to pick one. And you can actually always flip back and forth amongst them. But what if you only want one? So the solution is in the purpose, not the setup. So how effectively combine or how to effectively combine two Apple IDs. 
First pick one, from now on, that's the one you'll use when you sign up for a new service. Sign into that Apple ID on all of your devices and don't sign out unless you have a specific reason. You will have a specific reason. It will be that you need to log in to somewhere with that other ID or you need an app from there. But if you stick to one Apple ID for everything for the future, you are reducing your problems. And so what to do with the Apple other Apple ID? If you subscribe to any service through any Apple ID, but the one you've now picked is your main one, go through all of your subscription settings. Share them. Then switch back to your main and subscribe again from there. Import any data you exported. If you can't export the data, you need to keep using your other Apple ID. So there's really no way. You can delete the other Apple IDs. Not sure why you would want to do that if you've ever purchased anything over there, but I really think that there needs to be a way to merge these accounts. And I'm not sure if there is a way to merge accounts. Again, my problem really is centered around continuity of ownership. If I meet my demise, I really do have a large library compared to some, not as much as others, but hey, let's call it for what it is. I've spent a lot of money on apps. I've spent a lot of money on music and video and books. I've lost all of my music, basically. It was on CD and DVD, but I had ownership of it. I could give it to somebody if I wanted to. My CDs and DVDs were stolen out of my car, but that's okay. Everything now is virtual, which gives me a license to consume, but not real ownership of it. As far as everything that I've ever read about this, I don't own it. I have a license to consume it. I think that consumers need to have that protection. They paid for it, it's theirs. Not just a license, but it's theirs. They should be able to give it to somebody else if they want to. We've lost for sale doctrine here in the United States because of that, because there is no physical ownership anymore. So all of you who have switched to vinyl, kudos. You've nipped it in the bud, but as time goes on, vinyl will be harder and harder to come by. And in the 22nd century, Maybe it'll be worth thousands of dollars simply because it's actual physical media. But as I have many people around me saying physical media is dead. So let's move on to the next article. Oh, you know what? Let me do this again. Um, I normally load all of this up into hometown.showbot.tv, um, but I've already done that. So you can actually hit exclamation point showbot and that will give you the link Alternatively, you can actually hit exclamation point S and then some message. <laughs> I'm actually typing in some message and that'll get posted to Showbot as well. I'll see that. So if you want to submit something, you can just submit something. Comment, maybe a link. Um, give it a shot. In the meantime, I will also post the articles here in the chat stream. Uh, that way, if anybody watches the VOD, they'll see the stream as and the URL as we talk about everything. So let's move on to the next article. Um, 
and that one is in the Law Nerd channel, a problematic delay between wrongdoing and consequences for complex financial crimes. Um, I refer to this as the cat problem because when a cat does something wrong, you really don't ever figure it out until much, much later. Basically, you could call it the pet problem or the pet dilemma, something along those lines. Um, that's just a thought right off the cuff here. And uh, the, the problem is that it's, it says here, it's hard to ignore how our justice system is stacked in favor of pretty much all financial crimes. And when you follow this link, you get taken over to Above the Law. Jonathan Wolf is the author. And it says, in early 2019, an organized crime drug enforcement task force's investigation involving multiple law enforcement agencies caught a man named Gabriel Vasquez Ruiz selling more than three pounds of meth to an undercover law enforcement agent. Agents continued building evidence in their investigation in the drug ring Vasquez Ruiz was working with until December 16, 2020, when Ruiz was indicted along with 10 other people. That same day, Vasquez Ruiz was placed in custody where he remained up until his sentencing in November 2022. He was sentenced to 10 years in prison for conspiracy to distribute controlled substances along with five additional years of supervised release. More than a million people are arrested for drug offenses every year in the U.S. Yeah, but marijuana versus meth, two completely different animals. Anyway, compare that to the pathway of Elizabeth Holmes, the founder of fraudulent blood testing company Theranos, who has now been convicted of multiple federal fraud and conspiracy charges. Well, here's the deal. It's my interpretation of things that depending on who it is that was defrauded nothing really happens so let's see let's see let, let me just say so Lay, Skilling, Causey, and other Enron executives engaged in wide-ranging scheme to deceive investigate, uh, investing public, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, and others um, about the true performance of Enron's business. So, So let's see, there were apparently many executives that were indicted for various charges and some were later sentenced to prison, including Lay and Skilling. Arthur Anderson was found guilty of legally, illegally destroying documents relevant to the SEC investigation, which avoided its license to audit and all of that collapsed. But how many people were harmed in the Enron scandal? Well, in the case of Theranos, a couple of very high-powered names were harmed. And now, just for a couple, well, I mean, convicted for multiple federal fraud and conspiracy charges, even though, for all intents, I have yet to read that somebody was harmed. They might have been defrauded, but it was really the big names um, that invested in this company 
So it says, with whistleblowers at the company raising alarms to journalists, in October of 2015, the Wall Street Journal published an expose on some of the questionable practices at Ferranos. Holmes continued to make public appearances, touting the company's prowess. It really wasn't doing anything. It was doing fundamental research for all intents and purposes. But when a, a blood sample came in, uh, apparently they tested it with whatever device they were developing, but it was never capable of doing what was suspected it was supposed to do. <laughs> I say suspected because really nobody knew what was going on with this device. It just never was made manifest. But they used industry accepted uh, devices, but apparently they may not have been using them correctly. But still, nobody seems to have been harmed by this. But a couple of really high-powered names were defrauded and Holmes gets shuttled off to jail so this all happened in 2015 in 2022 is when Holmes was convicted and sentenced to 11 years and apparently she's still not in custody according to this article but I think that it happens elsewhere and uh, they say American white collar crime uh, costs victims an estimated 300 billion to 800 billion per year. The broad range has to do with so many of the perpetrators getting away with it. According to FBI statistics, street level property crimes like theft, larceny, and burglary only cost about 16 billion annually. The entire legal trade, uh, drug trade, is about 100 billion every year. And it doesn't take a statistician to see that. We're misallocating justice system resources by focusing most heavily on the latter types of crimes. Well, you know, it's the the nuts and bolts people. It's it's the boots on the ground people. It's us commoners that are bound by law. Right? Let's move on to the next article. This one's in the word in tech. Oh, I don't need to do that. I need to do that. So the next article is in the word in tech. The secret to STEM diversity may lie in peer mentorship. Researchers at the University of Massachusetts Amherst recently published a paper in Nature Communications showing that when first-year female STEM students are mentored by student peers, the positive ripple effect lasts throughout their undergraduate years and into their postgraduate lives, enhancing the mentee's subjective experience as well as objective academic outcomes. So I find this really interesting because... Uh, for the most part, um, mentorship um, is a struggle to obtain. Mentors are a struggle to obtain. Mentees want a mentor, um, but academia has a hard time reaching. Uh, here's the dilemma. Academia can't go out and find mentors, but the mentors are in either the academic circle itself where the school can say hey we would like a mentor or the mentor is in the workplace but the workplace very rarely comes to well i shouldn't say that this is more anecdotal um they don't go to the academic institution um, they have to be 
literally pulled in from the street. You know, uh, an academic needs to go over to the employer and go, hey, I want you to um, you know, hire interns and mentor people. Well, these are STEM students are mentored by student peers and the positive ripple effect lasts basically their entire academic and then into their workplace uh, performance. We often think that student success has something to uh, internal to some individuals, their innate drive, grit, or brilliance, says Neelan Jana Gasgupta, or Dasgupta, sorry, the paper's senior author, professor of psychological and brain sciences, and director of the Institute of Diversity, uh, Diversity Sciences at UMass Amherst. Quote, but our work shows that before success comes connection between the student and others in her peer community. From high quality peer relationships within the academic environment, especially relationships with peers who share a common identity, comes, with, uh, comes the confidence and motivation to persist, which lasts for a very long time, powering the student through her academic and early professional career. So. The reality of this, though, is depending on the area, the, there is great competition. So a mentor has to see past their own potential opportunities and help support others in the same academic circle. And this is really just a support group. It could be one person um, that there is an affinity or an identity to. But they go into greater detail in this. Uh, Dasgupta and uh, her co-authors co spent eight years from 2011 to 2019 monitoring a total of 150 female students who majored in engineering at UMass Amherst. The team focused on engineering because as a discipline, it is a, a well-documented, lopsided lack of gender diversity, even compared to other STEM fields. Only 21% of engineering majors are women, and they account for less than 13% of the engineering workforce. Yeah, and um, I don't think anybody's really gotten to the nuts and bolts of that. You know, why, why is the sector so lopsided? Um, I would have to do some more reading about that. Female students with female mentors not only showed more confidence, they also exhibited greater motivation, successfully secured professional internships, and were more likely to complete an undergraduate degree in a STEM field compared to either female students with male mentors or female students with no mentors. And that's because everything needs to be approachable. Everything needs to be identifiable by the mentee. And if the mentor is completely abstract because they don't understand the dilemmas facing the mentee, well, you're going to have some gap there, not, not a real connection, although it's possible, but on the whole, it's not going to be the same level of affinity. So if you're going to provide mentors, make sure that they might be more alike than this one. So let's move on to the next one. Now, I'm a, like I said, I'm going to try and do this fast and uh, give you some of your time back. The next article is in the Mobile Channel. Could new cancer drugs come from potatoes or tomatoes or and tomatoes? I think this one is really interesting because um, the idea that something as mundane as a potato or a tomato uh, providing something that is life-saving, 
like cancer drugs um, is pretty spectacular. So it says here, everyone uh, knows someone who has cancer or has had cancer. In 2020, around 19 million new cases and around 10 million deaths were registered worldwide. Treatments are improving all the time, but uh, can damage healthy cells or have severe side effects that are hard on patients. In the, new, in the search for new or targeted cancer drugs, traditional medicine offers many possible candidates. So this is over at fizz.org uh, by Frontiers, and there's no named author other than Frontiers. A team of Polish scientists led by Magdalena Winkiel at, and, or sorry, it says at Adam Mikowitz University, uh, publishing today in Frontiers in Pharmacology, has reviewed the bioactive compounds called glycocholates found in vegetables like potatoes and tomatoes to demonstrate the potential to treat cancer. Scientists around, this is a quote, scientists around the world are still searching for the drugs which will be lethal to cancer cells, but at the same time safe for healthy cells. This is going to be a really tough uh, solution. Uh, I'm stating the obvious, but the whole thing, the, the, really the issue with cancer cells is that there's no trigger embedded in the cancer cells for apoptosis. They don't die. They just divide, divide, divide. Um, and if they do die, they die at an extraordinarily different time frame than the rest of the living cells, the happy, healthy cells. Cancer cells are basically short-circuited. So it says it's not easy despite the advances in medicine and powerful develop yeah and powerful development of modern treatment techniques that is why it might be going worth going back to medicinal plants that were used years ago with success in the treatment of various ailments the author believes that they are worth re-examining the properties and perhaps rediscovering their potential uh, winkle and her colleagues focused on five glycocholates solanine uh, cocaine, solasonine, solamargine, and tomatine that are found in crude extracts of the sola, solasinae family of plants, also known as nightshades. So nightshades are actually poisonous. So that's why this section here is titled Making Medicine from Poison. This family contains many popular food plants, uh, and many are toxic frequently because of the alkaloids um, they produce as a defense against animals that eat plants, but the correct dose can turn a poison into a medicine. Once scientists have found a, a safe therapeutic do dose for an alkaloid, they can uh, be powerful clinical to tools. So, um, basically, um, at a low enough dose or with the right modification, it can actually um, stop um, cancer cells, right? So studies of a particular type of le uh, leukemia cells also showed that a therapeutic doses, solanine kills them. Yeah, well, is it going to have some other longer term effect somewhere when it's not just in a Petri dish somewhere? Um, Solamargine, I guess, is the name of it, uh, which is found mostly in eggplant, stops liver cancer cells from reproducing. Solamargine is 
one of several several uh, glycoalkaloids um, that could be crucial as a complementary treatment because it targets cancer stem cells, which are thought to play a significant role in cancer drug resistance. Uh, this is a really interesting article, um, but it says here that the glycoalkaloids mechanism of action must be better understood and all potential safety concerns must be scrutinized before patients can benefit from cancer drugs straight out of the vegetable patch. So this is why we need people to go into biopharmaceutical research and see maybe if something as innocuous as a potato and a tomato could be turned into a successful cancer drug. Let's move on to the next article. Um, this one is in the Marvel Channel. Uh, kind of like the last one. <laughs> it's a different idea. A single Asian hornet may have sparked the ongoing spread across Europe. You might have heard of them as murder hornets. Um, it's a predator of insects such as honeybees. They kill hundreds at a time. They just walk, walk up into a hive and just start lopping off the heads of honeybees. Um, hoverflies and other wasps uh, and pose a serious risk to apiculture or apiculture. Um, biodiversity and pollination services. This hornet can measure up to four centimeters in length and like all other social wasps is capable of delivering a painful sting although it is not aggressive by nature but if you mess with its nest you'll regret it. Uh, this is an article over at fizz.org by Pensoft Publishers. And it says here, thought to be to have been introduced into Europe from China in 2004, the Asian hornet has rapidly spread across the continent. While it has been thus far controlled by you know, in Britain, the hornet is well established across mainland Europe and the Channel Islands. In April 2021, the Irish National Parks and Wildlife Service confirmed that a single specimen had been found alive but dying in a private dwelling in Dublin, marking the first Irish record of this species. So the idea of this, based on their research, is that data from all three genetic markers confirm not only are Asian hornets in Europe from a single pedigree, but also descended from a single mated queen hornet that somehow arrived in France in 2004. Furthermore, this lineage has not been described within the native range. Our research has revealed the remarkable potential for population expansion of uh, eusocial insects in invaded areas, even with or original genetic diversity is extremely low. So they just basically survive. I mean, that pheromones are a magical drug. They, they, <laughs> um, I talked about a perfume recently that basically has this um, a reactive effect. And so when you spray it on you, like most, it smells a little bit different, but apparently uh, this one was very, I don't know, I guess it motivated people to come and say, what are you wearing and that kind of a thing. Um, but it was in a past episode and I can't remember the name right off the top of my head, but it's basically like a pheromone. So um, although you can't typically smell a pheromone, but when you are keyed into it, you know, you'll, insects are keyed into certain pheromones, so they'll find other insects. And that's what happened here. Uh, somewhere along the line, they bred and bred again and bred again. And so all of the 
Asian hornets in Europe are from one queen. <laughs> Apparently. So, pretty busy there. I'll move on. Oh, by the way, and these things are no... The, these murder hornets are not tiny little things. They are, you know, <laughs> quite big. Three, four inches. Let's move on to the next article. Um, this is an interesting one. Chinese students invent coat that makes people invisible to AI security cameras. If it's used in China, it's probably going to get outlawed. Um, to the naked eye, it looks like any other camouflage pattern coat. But to artificial intelligence cameras, it's an invisibility cloak that effectively conceals the person wearing it. By day, the coat's customized uh, camouflage prints designed through an algorithm escape detection from visible light cameras. By night, when security cameras usually identifying humans through infrared thermal imaging, the coat's embedded thermal devices emit different temperatures, presenting as unusual heat pattern that allows the coat to fly under the radar. Except that anything can be tracked. Come on. Pardon me. Sorry for the sniffles, folks. Um, this is by Ko Yu. I think their last name is pronounced that way. Uh, E-W-E. They're over at vice.com. It says security cameras using AI technology are everywhere. They pervade our lives. Our privacy is exposed, a researcher told Vice World News. I agree. Um, thermal devices attached to uh, uh, Invis Defense. That is not really... Uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, coat. Allow it to escape detection by security cameras that use infrared thermal imaging. Well, unless the pattern changes, that person will be identified. Um, by not only the markings, but by the other markings that are around those markings. So even if it's somebody else wearing the coat, their thermal image is going to be identified. It just takes training. It just takes time. Um, or they'll just outlaw it altogether. Quote, we spent a lot of energy preparing for this, including this product's design and development uh, way we... Um, the computer science graduate student who designed the coat's core algorithm told Vice World News. Uh, he said that the Invis Defense coat presents a novel way of circumventing AI human detection technology used by existing security cameras. Yeah, well, the algorithm will be modified. That's it. Um, so it says here we had to use an algorithm to design a le least conspicuous image that could render camera vision ineffective. And look, if you're wearing that jacket and you're seen by AI in any way, shape, or form, it's not like only AI is looking at these streams. You're going to be seen, and it's going to trigger people. And plus, this notoriety is really going to make it pop. The best way to stay undetected is not to pop up on anybody's radar and you know, oh, I'm going to buy this coat just puts you, you know, right there, front and center. Even if millions of people are wearing them, they, the government has an interest in, quote unquote, protecting the culture from outside influence, even though the global market, um, it's really about protection of oneself. But anyway, says China boasts a notorious state-of-the-art state surveillance system that is known to infringe on the privacy of its citizens and target the regime's political opponents. In 2019, the country was home to eight of the ten most surveilled cities in the world. Today, AI identification technologies are used by the government and companies alike, from identifying suspicious, quote-unquote, suspicious Muslims in Jiang, uh, 
Xinjiang, too discouraging children from late night gaming. That's an old one that they've already reversed as far as I know. Um, it's no longer a problem apparently. Um, but there are some uh, pushback and they talk about that in the article, but uh, this is something that's entrenched in the political processes of China and until uh, the CCP is, um, how would you describe it? I, I guess um, until they ma uh, willingly move away from their that ideology of protecting the culture, I don't see any changes happening. In fact, I think these people will probably um, be marked as, well, they're going to be, let's just say they're going to end up on a no-fly list. Let's go on to the next article. Twitter advertisers aren't happy with ads appearing on pages of white nationalists. I'm really shocked. You know, I mean, marketing is marketing, right? Ads for around 40 high-profile brands and organizations have been spotted on the Twitter pages of white nationalists, according to a report from the Washington Post. Ads from brands including Amazon, Uber, Snap, GoDaddy, media companies like USA Today, Morning Brew, and even one government organization, the US Department of Health and Human Services, was seen on the offending Twitter pages. And the ads were spotted on the profiles of Andrew Anglin and Patrick Casey. Anglin is the editor of neo-Nazi website, and Casey is a previously led the white nationalist group Identity Europa, later rebranded as American Identity. No, you are not the American Identity. Uh, kiss my shiny metal ass. And I'm a bot, so I actually do have one. Um, anyway, John Porter over at The Verge put this article together, and I just read you a snippet that gets aggregated by my gatherer, and... Uh, I won't read you the whole thing, I won't even go into great detail, but advertisers do not like negative press. And when their brand is aligned with something like a white nationalist, the racism is apparent. They're, <laughs> they're all human. Why be a scumbag? I don't know. I don't know. I'll just leave it there. You know, there is... can't wrap my head around the thought processes that <laughs> I, I just I don't get it I just don't get it look around look around there there is no such thing as a superior human being and it definitely isn't uh, about uh, white nationalists being the one that the ones that should be running a country they shouldn't even be allowed to have crayons so i'm just gonna leave that alone and we're gonna move on to the next article um you can follow the uh, links uh, i'm that last link was about Twitter advertisers not being happy with ads appearing on the pages of white nationalists. I don't know if you would be, uh, but I certainly wouldn't want to be associated, even just the slight optics of being associated with a white nationalist would turn my stomach. So the next article is in the Wanted channel. San Francisco decides killer robots uh, aren't such a great idea. The robot 
police dystopia will have to wait, according to this article. Last week, the San Francisco Board of Supervisors voted to authorize the San Francisco Police Department to add lethal robots to its arsenal. Ah, one pissed off AI away, and we have killer robots. Uh, the plan wasn't yet robots with guns, though some police bomb disposal units uh, fire shotgun shells already, and some are used by the military as gun platforms. True, there's even a robot that runs around with a shotgun on it. Uh, somebody did that aftermarket. It's not built that way, at least not yet. Um, to arm the bomb disposal robots with bombs, allowing them to drive up to suspects and detonate. Once the public got wind of this, the protest started, and after an 8-3 vote authorizing the robots last week, now the San Francisco Board of Supervisors has unanimously voted to at least temporarily ban lethal robots. Now, autonomous robots, I can understand banning but I would rather put a bot in harm's way than a human being. That's the way I think about it. But with the way that due diligence seems to be failing a lot of instances of uh, shoot first, ask questions later, I don't want a bot. I would rather have somebody thinking critically about the situation and maybe trying to back off a little bit um, because when a robot comes strolling up with lethal force the only response is outright lethal reaction or run away in either way somebody's going to end up more hurt than if it was a human trying to connect to another human and and shut them down without violence now, sometimes it's absolutely necessary because somebody has had a psychotic break and you can't stop them without some form of violence because all other options are off the table. Sometimes it's necessary. Well, it says here on December 5th, over 100 protesters so showed up at, to the San Francisco City Hall carrying signs with phrases like, we've all seen that movie. <laughs> Ron Amadeo is the author of this over at ArsTechnica.com. Wow, I hope that music wasn't so loud that you couldn't hear me. It got louder. Anyway. It's going to be a bummer if this show is washed out by the music i had it turned down but it got really loud anyway um among the protesters was dean preston one of the san francisco supervisors who originally voted against the policy preston claims the sfpd may have violated the law by not publicly publishing the robot policy 30 days before giving uh, it going up for the vote this has been happening before not just here but everywhere you know somebody will not do something um, and it's really a hoop. So, okay, fine. Put it up for 30 days and then implement it. It's really just a stopgap for public discourse to take place, which is great. Um, but if the board wants to make it happen, they'll make it happen. Uh, it, it's really a, when it comes down to it, it's about money um, and safety. And if they deem that it's necessary to have robots with lethal force, then it will be implemented. So 
Uh, let's move on to the next article. I only have two more um, and uh, I'll get out of here. You can um, get in touch with me in myriad way. Uh, I'm over on hometown.com. You can always sign up over there. You, you can send me messages here on Twitch. I'm over on YouTube. You can always comment on a video there. I always leave them open. Um, I'm on Twitter, but not really. I'm on uh, Discord, but not really. I don't know. I'm everywhere, but except Facebook properties. They too can kiss my shiny metal ass. Anyway. Uh, the continuity report is the location of the next article. TikTok urges global TV community to use its platform as discovery engine to build awareness around IP. So the various state governments are now pushing back against TikTok. TikTok may be one of the foremost social platforms in the world, but the service may or still remains relatively opaque for much of the international TV industry at Singapore's uh, Asia, Asia TV Forum, uh, TikTok's global head of sports and gaming, Harish Sarma, sorry, it's hard to say that really fast, Harish Sarma, uh, tried to connect the dots between the platform's audience and how producers and distributors connect. So let's go over to Minori Ravandran at Variety.com. And... Um, so these uh, distributors want to reach out to everybody, emphasizing engagement over strict monetization. In his Wednesday keynote, one of the most anticipated sessions of ETF this year, Sarma shared that the platform's goals of engagement, awareness, and serving as a discovery engine are pillars that, quote, frankly, a lot of folks in this room can benefit from. Instead of thinking of the world as... Uh, of TikTok as fairly binary as whether you're a buyer or a seller of content, think about it in the context of we are the catalyst that is going to not only prop up the value of your IP, but in many ways we're going to allow those who purchased your IP to now really get the word out and build true brand affinity with communities. All right. Well, you can actually start streaming on TikTok and, and building uh, an audience and interacting uh, right now. The barriers to doing this kind of stuff is very low to get started. But to get an audience, to get people committed to you like you are committed to them, that is a considerably higher bar. So you have to be interactive. You have to be uh, on longer than uh, my show. My show is only an hour. Um, so it's really tough for people to go, well, I'm going to stop what I'm doing over here for this one hour and then hang out for, you know, 45 minutes to an hour, hour and a half, maybe, uh, and, uh, and, but commit to it. Right. So I do my show every day at 6 PM Eastern. Um, and I talk about business technology and society, right? Well, over on TikTok, you have a, a different set of interests and motivations. So you have to get to know that particular audience and build content specifically for that audience. You'll reshape it for YouTube. You'll reshape it for uh, Twitch. You'll reshape it for any other social network, even Twitter. Um, but it can be lucrative. So pick a platform and, and start driving your message out there and start building your brand. The New York-based executive detailed subcultures such as cosplay and anime that exist within the primary entertainment vertical on the on the platform. 
um, that are extremely vibrant. Yes, I would agree. I think yeah, creators in general, uh, particularly makers, the ones that are instructive um, in their very nature, talking about the material they use or talking about the events they go to, uh, things that are engaging and you have a, a an engaging personality, that's really where it's at. Um, and sometimes there's a, other things that motivate people to watch um, or to engage. But one thing that stands clear about social networks where there are creators or there is some personality out there is that it is really almost one-on-one. -on -one. There might be millions of people that are following somebody, but when you make a, con a comment as a consumer and the maker responds, um, that is an endorphin rush. People really do appreciate that interaction. Um, and you really can't do that with things like big movie stars, for the most part, or big uh, sports heroes and stuff. You know, every once in a while you might be able to do that, but on smaller platforms, smaller makers um, in particular, you can get one-on-one -on -one interaction, uh, the likes of which you wouldn't normally get with you know, somebody that has 25 million followers and uh, is more, is less engaged because they can't deal with 25 million consumer or like, yeah consumers of their products so but tiktok it's there's people that are just sitting there and flipping through <laughs> uh, for hours out of the day just flipping through tiktok videos and everybody's engaged i mean people really dig it um and the last article for today is in the stock marketeers channel Microsoft is uh, bringing Call of Duty to Nintendo if Activision merger is approved. Um, I feel like this is kind of like a bribe, you know, make it happen. <laughs> uh, but it says Microsoft Corporation said to, late Tuesday that it had made a 10-year commitment to bring the massively popular Call of Duty video game series to Nintendo co uh, consoles when and if its merger with Activision Blizzard uh, Incorporated is completed. And, doesn't that sound like i don't know a bribe or extortion make this happen and we will um mike murphy over at market watch is the one that put this article together but there really isn't much more to it um they've got a lot of information and stock stuff and and whatnot but it says in an interview with the washington post published tuesday spencer said that there was no Nintendo Call of Duty release date set yet, but that if the merger closes and it has a June 2023 target date, future Call of Duty games would be released for all platforms at once. Once we get into the rhythm of this, our plan would be then uh, launches on PlayStation, Xbox, PC, that it would also be available on Nintendo at the same time, he told the Washington Post. So these guys got their news from the Washington Post. At any rate, that's it for today. See, I didn't soapbox that much that time, right? Rip the Band-Aid off real quick. So I want to thank you if you are downloading it over on the uh, podcast side of things it's pretty much everywhere so just do a search for hometown on your podcast catcher um, i'm over on youtube hometown is there um, you can actually just do at hometown now and i think that it'll pull it all up um, i'm here on twitch every day at 6 p.m eastern and uh, i am going to um, 
maybe curl into a ball and weep if the last or the beginning 30 minutes of this was uh, washed out by music because I monitored it and well, maybe my monitor was broken. At any rate, if you hear a grown person crying, it could be me. See you tomorrow, 6 p.m. Eastern. Bye-bye.